Luke 10, verse 25, the Bible says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at that place, the place came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Would you read the last few words with me? Go and do thou likewise. Interesting. No greater teacher than Jesus Christ had a wonderful way of being able to just cut across every aspect and get right to the point. And that's what Jesus did with this lawyer. I want to go ahead and pray right now and ask the Lord to bless as we speak about this subject, loving your neighbor. Our Father in heaven, I pray today for this special moment as I do something that you've ordained long time ago. When you established the church, you had men ordained to the ministry to be able to declare the truth of God's Word. And today I'm one of millions who have stood in pulpits all around the world, all down through the centuries, who are declaring the Word of God. This is not of my ingenuity, my creativity. You've directed me to this passage. You've directed my thoughts in the study. And now today, I pray that you would strengthen me, allow me to do what you've asked me to do. Please work in hearts today. I may be able to speak and allow people to hear words But it's only you that can touch the heart and cause people to act upon what they hear. And I just pray that you'd move mightily. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I would dare say today that many people, even unsaved people, know about the story that we just read referred to as the Good Samaritan. They may not know where to find in the Bible, but they sure understand its principle. We have commonly referred in our land today certain laws where people show mercy to others. There are certain protections given to them, and we call those the Good Samaritan Laws. All of you, if you've been coming for a while, should know of Samaritan's Purse. How many have ever heard of Samaritan's Purse before? Oh, wonderful. Praise the Lord. And any time somebody does something for someone out of the ordinary, we might refer to that act as a good Samaritan deed. Now, while many may not practice the good Samaritan deed, they certainly look for it and often appreciate it when they see it. 1971, two Princeton psychologists staged an experiment. They actually got 40 young men who were studying for the ministry in seminary, and they told them that they were going to record their sermons. Half of them were given the text on the Good Samaritan. The other half were told that they could preach whatever they wanted to. But they were all given a specific route to the recording hall of where they would preach their sermon. And on this route, there was a staged victim lying on the floor, uh, groaning and coughing and looked like he was in agony and needed attention. And of the 40 seminarians who passed by, only 16 stopped to help. One man actually stepped over the victim thinking he was just laying there blocking the door. Now, it's easy for us to kind of read into this and say, well, you know, that's those people. But if I was brought before a situation, I would do this. My friend, many of us are like the Levite and the priest often in our lives. While I've heard this story on a number of occasions, I think it is very important for us to get the thrust of what Jesus is giving to us. For instance, I've heard this passage of Scripture preached by many a preacher in regards to the subject of soul winning. Now, while I'm a preacher who motivates people to be engaged in soul winning and believe that every one of us ought to be out in evangelistic efforts, I don't think that soul winning is necessarily at the core of this particular story. You see, to me, as I've read this and looked through it, this story is not about soul winning, it is about soul loving. And I get the fact that soul winning and evangelism is at the heart of God, and very possibly, if we could have read the rest of the story that's not given to us, it might be that the Samaritan sat down with that man and shared with him verbally the love of Christ, and that man came to know Jesus as Savior. But I want to tell you today that it begins many times our soul-winning efforts with soul-loving, getting out and reaching people right where they are. Let's look this morning, afresh and anew, at this parable and ask God to help us be a good Samaritan in the area that we live. First of all, I want you to notice the activation of this parable. What prompted Jesus giving the parable of the Good Samaritan? Well, would you first take note with me here in verse number 25 that there was a certain lawyer that stood up and asked a question. Now, who's a lawyer? 
If you ask us today in this time that we live in, a lawyer would be somebody who prosecutes or defends somebody in a court of law. But a lawyer in Jesus' day was someone who was well-versed in the law of Moses. Today, we have many people that work in the tax field, tax accountants, who will tell us what the tax codes are, and we rely upon those people because there are 6,871 pages of tax codes. How many of you have taken the time to read through those? Well, I want to tell you, you look in the Bible... And there were, it's been estimated that there were 613 commandments given in the Old Testament to the Jewish people. But the Jewish people, many of their priests and, and people that were in religious authority, began to expand all of those uh, laws and they would determine, all right, now here's what you can do on the Sabbath day. Here's what you can't do. Here's how far you can travel. Here's the things that you can do. Here's the people that you can help. And of all the laws that were given, they added to them scores upon scores. And therefore, it took a lawyer, if you will, to be able to help interpret to the average Jewish person what was in the law. Now, what does this lawyer do? Well, the Bible tells us, that he stood up and tempting him. Now, when we think of tempting, we think of in an evil connotation. We're going to do something that is going to hurt somebody and cause them to commit some sin. But the word literally means to test out. In other words, it has this idea of pushing somebody to an extreme to where maybe they don't want to go. And what does this lawyer do in tempting the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he gives a question and he gives a loaded question. Now, I like to look at this question in two different sides. First of all, in one sense, we understand this question to be referring about what does it take to go to heaven? Because when we think of eternal life, what do we think of? We think of heaven. Well, is that not the question of the ages? What does it take to go to heaven? There's so many varied answers in this world. So many people will say, well, you, you got to go to these types of churches. You got to perform these particular acts. You must do these certain deeds. And we have all sorts of answers of what it takes to go to heaven. But I'm telling you, Jesus made it very clear that there's only one way to heaven, and it is through him because he died on the cross and paid for your sin. Amen. That's it. Yeah. There's no way to heaven. But I want you to think about how this Samaritan is asking this question, because notice in verses 23 and 24, after Jesus had gotten the 70 back, that is, they were out on an evangelistic campaign, and he brought them back and gave them some instruction, and he's starting to talk about how blessed they are. They have this blessed life that they're able to see some of these wonderful things. And I want you to note that when the lawyer asks, what does it take to have eternal life? He's not necessarily talking about eternal in the sense of a duration of life. Because I want to remind you here today, all of us are created as eternal beings. Just because you got saved, God didn't just say, all right, now I'm going to allow you to live forever. No, God created us with a never-dying soul. And so this lawyer is coming to Jesus, and yes, there is something about what does it take to go to heaven, but there is a sense of what does it take to have a great quality of life, that blessed life that you just referred to. And so what does Jesus do? 
Jesus here, his response is quite simple. Look at verse number 26. I love his words here. Let me paraphrase. You're a lawyer. What does the law say? And the second part of his question is this. How do you interpret the law? So you read it. You look at it. You should know all this. What does it say? Well, notice here the lawyer's answer. What does he do? He summarizes the Ten Commandments. Now, if you're not familiar with the Ten Commandments, you go to Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, and you find that there are the Ten Commandments there. How many of you can quote them today? I won't put you on the spot because I'm not even sure I could get through them all, you know? But truthfully, there's the Ten Commandments, and when you look at them and break them down, there's a way to break those Ten Commandments down into two parts. Number one, you look at the first four commandments. It has to do with our relationship with God. You take commandments number five through ten, and it all has to do with our relationship with our brothers around us, our, as the passage says, our neighbor. And so when the lawyer gives the answer, when he says, look, Here's what I'm to do to have that, that type of quality of life. I'm to love God with all my soul, with my mind, with my heart, with everything. And he adds this, I'm to love my neighbor as myself. Now, no doubt this man, being a student of the law, was able to correctly answer this. And what happens here when he gives this answer? Jesus told him to follow this and he'll find the quality of life he's looking for. But the man couldn't let it go right there. Again, with the premise of wanting to tempt the Lord, he thought he'd ask a follow-up question and try to rattle his cage. Willing, the Bible says, to justify himself, he goes ahead and asks the next question. So here's this man. He wants to declare how righteous he is. He knows what the law defines as a neighbor. See, in this day, the lawyers and the priests and all the religious leaders would define a neighbor as somebody that you could love, but there were people who were enemies that you didn't have to love. In fact, you hated. In other words, this man was willing to justify himself because he said, look, that man who helped me, I helped him back. That's my neighbor. That man who, who I like his quality of life, I've helped him. But these other outcasts, these other people who are my enemies, I've not helped them. And so, Jesus, I'm going to put you to the test here. Let's define, according to the law, the word neighbor. Well, I love this. Jesus doesn't get into the word definitions. Jesus doesn't get in to saying, all right, let's go ahead and pull out our commentaries. Let's put all our Hebrew dictionary and let's begin looking at this. No, no. Jesus gives an illustration. I want you to point note point number two, the analysis of this parable. I want you to notice Jesus doesn't squabble over the definition of the word. Instead, he gives what we call a parable. What's a parable? We have roughly about 35 parables that are given in the New Testament. And a parable has often been called a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. In other words, whenever you hear a preacher give an illustration, you know what that preacher's doing with the illustration? He's trying to help you understand the spiritual truth a little better. What Jesus does is he gives this parable to drive home the point of who the neighbor is. 
First of all, looking at this parable Jesus gave, would you notice here the vulnerable person? The vulnerable person. Now, this person's not named. And typically, in a parable, when Jesus gave these, they were always fictitious characters, if you will. This man in the parable that Jesus gave, traveled from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is said is approximately 15 miles. But sadly, along this way, this man is ransacked by evil men. Now, historians have told us, in fact, Josephus, one of the historians who lived around the time of Jesus, had this to say about that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He said, and I quote, that road was famous for its Lurking dangers, especially robbers. Typically, people would not travel this road alone with goods, but this man in the story traveled alone and ended up in the tragic situation. But now note the people who pass by this vulnerable man. This vulnerable man's been stripped, he's been beaten, and left for dead. Jesus, once again, I love the way Jesus crafts a story and puts things together. He picks out certain individuals whom all of us would think would do something about it. He selects a priest and a Levite. Now, if you were there that day and you were hearing Jesus give this parable, wouldn't you say, oh, the priest, he stopped for sure. Oh, the Levite, of course he did. I mean, come on, who was a priest and a Levite? They had a great ancestry. They were all involved in the duties of the temple. They could trace their heritage back to Aaron and to Levi. They were people involved in the religious uh, workings of the temple to help people get connected to God. Surely these people would stop and help that vulnerable man. But look at the words in verses 31 and 32. I want you to see one small word. By chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he, what's the next word? Saw. Look at verse 32. Likewise, the Levite, when he was at that place, came, and the same Greek word is used here, looked on him. The word here, saw or looked, means to perceive with the mind. They saw the situation, they calculated it, and they said, you know what? It's too messy for me to get involved in. I'm going the other direction. And that's what they did. They passed by on the other side. But again, the story doesn't stop there. (laughs) The Lord Jesus begins to craft further this story by now selecting a man passing by, a third man passing by this vulnerable man who is a Samaritan. Now, if, you're not if you don't understand your Bible history, you're not going to understand the thrust of Jesus using a Samaritan. A Samaritan in the Bible was a person whom the full-blooded Jews considered as a half-breed. You see, all the way back when Israel had gone on into captivity, the Assyrians who had taken that northern tribe into captivity began to marry these Jewish people, and therefore their offspring in Nehemiah's day were known as Samaritans. And all the way in the days of Jesus, the Samaritans basically were kept at a distance from the full-blooded Jews. 
In fact, if you look at a map of the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, there were three main regions. Up at the north was Galilee. Down at the south was Judea, and right between those two was Samaria. And if Jews wanted to go from the south to the north, they wouldn't take the easiest route from point A to point B. Because they despised the Samaritans, they would go around Samaria. That's how much they hated the Samaritans. This Samaritan, what does he do? He stops. He stops. He doesn't avoid it. He looks. He's moved with compassion. And he begins to give of his time and resources. Look at what he does in those verses. He begins to wrap up the, the, the wound, but he begins to pour in wine in there. That is, it contains alcohol, which was an antiseptic that had an effect on the man's wounds to be able to help clean it. The oil was, was placed on the wound to help soothe the wounds and ease the pain. Notice what he does. The Bible says that he set him on his own beast, which means that the Samaritan would now have to walk himself. He took out two pence, probably, as I've read through some of the commentaries, it would probably pay for maybe about two to three weeks of this man's stay at the inn. But to top it off, he planned on coming back and would do more if necessary. Now let's put this story together for just a moment because everything's wrapped around this vulnerable man, but I want you to notice there are varying philosophies that are given, various philosophies. Let's take for just a moment the thief who robbed that man. Let's take the Levite and the priest, and then let's take the Samaritan, and really there are three philosophies of life. Let me give those to you. When I look at the thief, I note this. The thief's idea was, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. That was the thief's philosophy. Now, this may not simply be just the godless people in the world who we call thieves, though it does characterize them. But this could describe people today who are employees who steal time away from their employer, people who take small items not belonging to them. This could describe partners or spouses who are controlling in their relationship. It could, it could describe those who are manipulative for their own self-serving purposes. That's the philosophy of many out in the world. What is yours is mine, and I'm going to go ahead and take it. That was summarized by the thief. But notice second philosophy. What's mine is mine. I'll keep it. That summarized the Levite and the priest. They looked at the man. And I'm sure they had something in their pocket to give them. I'm sure they had some, something to help clean up their wounds. But they said, you know what? We're not going to help and get involved in this. We have something to do it, but we're going to go on. And I'm sad to say this describes those, especially in Christianity, who have no concern for others. This describes believers sitting in church pews who will not walk across the street to share the gospel with their neighbor. What a shame. What a shame. This may describe those here today who will not give of their tithes and offerings because they say, I've earned it. This is my money. And they'll not give it to God. 
It may describe people who don't bother getting involved in ministry because they say, you know what? It's my time. I'm not coming on Sunday nights. It's my time. I'm not coming to the Bible study on Wednesday nights. It's my time. I want to tell you something. You need to start getting away from this philosophy of what's mine is mine. I'll keep it. But I love the philosophy of the Samaritan. Notice this. What's mine is yours. I'll share it. Think about that. What's mine is yours. I'll share it. This should describe every born-again believer. Now, we've seen the activation of this parable. We've analyzed it a little bit. But as I was in fourth grade, I had a great Sunday school teacher, Mr. Bill Smith, who when he got to the application, he'd say, let's get boys to where the rubber meets the road. Let's apply this. The application of the parable. First of all, Jesus makes sure that as He gives this illustration and preaches this short sermon, He gives an invitation, if you will. He asks the lawyer, who's the neighbor? The lawyer responds with the correct answer, but observe his answer. He doesn't name the individual. He probably didn't want to have the word Samaritan come out of his lips. But what does he do? He identifies the individual By actually stating what he did, he said these words, He that showed mercy. Now think about this for just a moment. If you're going to have the philosophy of what's mine is yours, I'm going to share it, how does that happen? How do you get to be like the good Samaritan? Well, first of all, I want you to notice it begins with your attitude. Attitude. Should be on the screen here, the word attitude. Now the word is used here, mercy, but we have a similar word that we may understand as well, compassion. The word compassion or mercy that is used here has been defined as the idea of suffering with. It has often been said that compassion is your pain and my heart going about and meeting the needs right where they're at. I tell you, it all begins with the attitude. What was the attitude of the Levite and the priest? They saw it, they evaluated, they didn't want to get involved, and so they moved on to the other side. It begins with an attitude of compassion. You know, it's very interesting. The Bible tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ, how on many occasions He was moved with compassion. Notice second way of getting involved. It's not just attitude, but it's action. Jesus moved with compassion, and when the Bible says Jesus was moved with compassion, you know what he did? He acted upon it. This Samaritan saw the need, and he did what he could. It's important you go to the need. You say, Pastor, you don't understand the messy needs around me. You know, I'm going to tell you something. When you look around at what sin has done to people, it does leave messes, it leaves a lot of messes. It leaves a lot of problems out there. It leaves a lot of things that we look at, and from a fleshly standpoint, we go, "Mm, I don't want to get involved in that. But I'm here to tell you that God has left us here and placed us on this earth so we may get involved in situations and help people. Because at one time, before you and I got saved, we were a messy situation. If you're willing to admit it today... 
You were a sinner that was undone, didn't deserve any of the grace of God. You had messed up life all around you. And yet somebody came to you at your need and showed you mercy and compassion. It takes action. I tell you, if you're going to go to the need, you may have to come overcome your social prejudices. Sad to say there are some here today that have problems with skin color. There are still some that have problems with lifestyle. And I'm not here to justify lifestyles. Sin is sin. Wrong is wrong according to the Bible. But if someone comes in here and is genuinely seeking the right way, I want to be there to help them. Somebody in their station of life may not be in the right spot. But I'm telling you, we've got to overcome some of those prejudices we may have. Is it not amazing that Jesus spoke to you and I today about the needs of those who may appear unlovely or those who may not pay us back? How amazing. In Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus is talking about those end times there in the tribulation period, and he's sharing with them how they had helped those and had given a cup of cold water in his name and had given some other things to help those that were in need. And they began to ask, well, when did we do these things? And Jesus said, when you've done it unto the least of these, the least of these, those who can't pay you back, those who may not appear lovely, but you've done it to these. Does not James put it very genuinely in chapter 1, verse 27, that pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to help out the fatherless and the widows. I'm telling you, he begins to lay things out. May I say to you today that our evangelistic efforts may not always involve reciting a script, but it will be when Spirit-filled believers engage the world in their need and share the love of Christ. Listen to this, if you will, please. I turn to this reference. I didn't put it in my notes. But 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18 the Bible says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us. How do you know Jesus loves you? He gave His life for you. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Oh, preacher, you're starting to hammer home now. No, this is what the Bible says. Don't blame me. Don't look at me. Take what the Bible says. But whoso, and he begins to craft it a little further, whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of mercy, compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's what we need today. I want you to notice a third word. There's attitude, having compassion. There's action, going to the need. But I love this. There's an affiliation. That is, he told the innkeeper, I'm going to come back. 
and I'm going to help out, and I'm going to, pro- I'm going to build a relationship. You know, it's not often people receive the gospel and get saved the first time they hear Jesus. It's many times you plant the seed. Could be what you say, could be what you do. But then you go back and you water the seed and you water it again and you go back and you water it again and you build that relationship and you begin to work on some things together. And I want to tell you that many times through this idea of building friendships and building relationships, you see people come to know Christ. As I conclude today, I'm reminded of what the great preacher C.H. Spurgeon said. He wrote that, and I quote, when we see innocent persons suffering as a result of the sin of others, our pity should be excited. And he began to give some examples of things that he got involved in through their church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Here's what he said that ought to provoke pity in the lives of believers. Children sick and starving because of a drunken father. Wives overworked and burdened because of lazy and cruel husbands. Workers oppressed in wages and working conditions just to survive. Those afflicted from accidents and disease. Now, can I tell you something? This doesn't mean that every need you need to run after that presents itself to you. I don't think, we don't read about it, but I don't think that that Samaritan went to that road between uh, Jerusalem and Jericho and established a hospital for all those that got ransacked. But you know what it tells me? That that Samaritan, just like you and I, faced the need right before him. And all too often, we're looking around and we see a need here and a need there and a need across the street and a need right here in our community. And we look at it and we evaluate and we go, I don't have time. That's too messy. That's problematic for me. And we move on the other side. And we wonder why we're not reaching people with the gospel. Can I say to you today that we have so many opportunities before us And in these last few months, with having such a choice organization like the Samaritan's Purse here, it has opened our eyes to see that when you help people right where they are, God does some big things. Over 200 people in our community here have trusted Jesus as Savior. And you say, preacher, all those genuine conversions? I don't know. Leave that to God. That's up to God. Our job is to go out and scatter the seed and let people know about the gospel. There may be some who just pray a simple prayer but didn't understand it, didn't mean it. But I can tell you, as I've done a lot of follow-up, I have met a number of people who have testified when I've asked them, did you receive Jesus as Savior when those chaplains came by? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Brother Barry has been reminding me that a year ago, when we unveiled our theme for 2022, it was declare the gospel. And I guess I prayed something like this. I said, Lord, do whatever it takes. It's not my fault, I'm telling you. (laughs) But could I ask you this question? If God came to you and said, look, 
I want you to give something up so people can be saved. What would you give up? I think how you answer that question will determine your attitude towards getting the gospel out. These people working with Samaritan's Purse have loved on people, cried with them, helped them, prayed with them. And in the aspect of getting right to where they are on their level, many of the hearts have been softened to the gospel and many of them have received Christ as Savior. The reason you don't see people saved is because all you care about is you. You. That's it. You care about you, your life, your resources, and you're keeping it to yourself. But I'm telling you, God's blessed you with a little extra to help somebody. You may not be able to help every need, and you may not be able to help in the same degree as other people, but you have something. Use it. All of us have the same amount of time. You say, well, Pastor, you don't understand how busy I am. Don't use that. Quit using that. Because I can find somebody that's busier than you are. All of us have the same amount of time allotted to each other, but it depends on what you do with your time, how you divide that time up. The Samaritans is wonderful. I think here today, not only a Samaritan's purse, but I think of our camper ministry. This is the ministry to the homeless. I love this. They refer to them as the campers, giving them some dignity, if you will. I think here real soon, we're looking, I've been talking with Brother Kalinas, and we're looking to start a ministry to help uh, recovering addicts. It's a recovery program, and we've been looking at some of the details and trying to figure out exactly when to start this. But I'm telling you, what a great ministry as a good Samaritan. Some of you are here today and can help out disciple other people. You say, Preacher, I, I don't understand a whole lot about the Bible. That's okay. Get down and learn with them. Learn with them. Spend time with them. Get your feet dirty a little bit. Get involved. Get your hands dirty. Get involved in the lives of their other people. Scottish Baptist minister who passed away in 1910, Alexander McLaren, said this, the world would be a changed place if every Christian attended to the sorrows that are plain before him. There are things right before you that need attention. 